Good morning. Um, our scripture this morning is from 2 Peter 1, verses 12 through 21. If you would turn there with me or follow along. 2 Peter 1, verses 12 through 21. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I did that intentionally. I knew the, uh, the, the room would get a little quieter, and then you would look at me awkwardly, and then you would all laugh like that, so that's always a great thing. Good morning. Let's try that again. Hey, uh, let, let me pray. Uh, I want you to know that the, the most important part of this service is Sarah just took care of it, which is the reading of God's Word. Not that the other parts are not as important, but when, when we're reading God's Word, we're reading what He has left us with. And so we want to make sure that we do what we can to, to explain what that means to, to you, to be able to live by it. And so let me pray, and then we'll dive right into this text. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We pray that you would uh, remove me from, from here. I pray that anything that I say that's contrary to what you teach, that this congregation and even those watching, that they would completely not think or remember about those, those things. But Father, I, I pray that you would just open our eyes, our hearts, for your truth this morning. And I pray, Father, as we look through Second Peter chapter 1, that we would be able to leave this place here today understanding that we can live with confidence in God's truth. So Father, I pray that you uh, just go before us and uh, enable us to understand once again what you want us to understand. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Uh, recently I, I heard a story about a comedian, an accountant, and the IRS. Now, you're, you're laughing because you're thinking about those three individuals or a group 
how this story actually took place, but this, this comedian had an accountant, and after the accountant passed away, his lawyer received a phone call. And so the phone call went something like this. Uh, I just want to let you know that uh, something went terribly wrong. I just walked into the office of your old accountant, and on the floor, I found a pile of documentation and tax paper that you filled out, all signed up and with all your checks stapled to them. After this process took place, they realized the accountant had received the checks, but instead of paying for the taxes of this comedian, he was writing or withdrawing the same amount that the check was communicating without explaining to the guy that he was taking that personally. So after seven years, this guy found himself in a $22 million hole. $22 million. Now, here's, here's what's interesting about this. He was confident that this accountant was actually doing everything he was supposed to. But in this room here, there are probably many of us who can say, I've been confident about certain things in my own life that actually have disappointed me. That may be a bank account. That may be the housing market. That may be a career. Maybe music, if you're young, you wanna be a, an athlete and maybe that's not working out very well for you. Maybe it's relationships. How many of you have been disappointed with relationships? Now, if I were to ask you this following question, how many of you disappointed somebody else in a relationship? I think all of us, if we were in a humble state of mind, we would be able to say, yes, that's also true of me. But what I, wanna, what I want us to focus here this morning is that I hope you can see today, based on what Peter has to say to us, that his argument in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse, verses 12 to 21, is that... Only, the only confidence that we can have that does not disappoint us is the confidence that we have not only in God, but also in God's divine truth. Now look with me in verse 12. Let's dive right into this text. You have on your outline, the first point in there is called memory, which is the importance of remembering the scripture. Verse 12, uh, Peter says, Therefore, I intend to remind you constantly of these things, even though you know, you know them and are established in the truth that you now have. Now, this text starts with a famous word, therefore. What Paul, Peter is actually talking about the things that he just mentioned last week that Pastor David preached on. He's talking about the spiritual maturity that takes place, which is based on the power of God and also producing a list of God-giving attributes that must be present in our lives. And Pastor David illustrated that saying that we can't pick and choose which attributes we want to have. God wants us to have all those things in our lives because he has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Now, what's amazing about this text here is that Peter wastes no time to give us the purpose for, for, the, for his writing. Look, look with me in verse 12. Once again, he says this, I intend to remind you, 
That's the purpose. Remind you of what, Michael? Peter says, remind you of these things. What, what things is he talking about? Well, he's talking about God's divine power and salvation. And he says, even though, and here's the key, even though they, or the readers, they know these things, and, not, and they, they're well-established in the truth. Now, the issue here for Peter is the same issue that our church, not only CBF, but any church around this globe will face today, which is the issue of, do we need to be constantly reminded of these things? Now, if you're a parent like I am, and you have little kids like I do in my house, you realize that you probably, all of us, had to tell our kids this morning multiple times to put their shoes on. And then we had to remind them that even though they do not like oatmeal, that they must eat it before they go to church, otherwise they're gonna get grumpy and cranky, and they're gonna be like daddy when he's hungry. We all need reminders, but here's the key. If we need to remind our little ones why do you think God would not have the desire to remind us, the, his little ones, that those things are important? Now, here's some things that you can think practically of what can help you to remind yourself of some of those things. Now, personal study of God's word. If you do this, you will be personally reminded of these things. You have time in prayer, devotional time. You have a worship service like this morning. You come here, you're reminded of these things. You have small groups. You have fellowship with believers outside. You're reminded of God's work in people's lives. You do scripture memory, like the fighter verses that you get on our newsletter. This week, Psalm 37, verse 20, 23 and 24. And if you have children like I do, it would be good for you to remind them at a young age, that these things are important. So you can find devotional books, you can get the Institute of um, Creation Research, or you, you can get all kinds of magazines that are children-oriented, but they're godly, with godly principles. And I'm not here, once again, to advertise anything, but you can do those things. Now, here's one more. This week I received an article from one of our elders here in this church, and... Um, the article was all about the significance of mentorship, how parents should help their children with finding mentors to help them to walk through life and how much more those children will succeed in their walk with Jesus because they have other men and women that balance their lives that tell them maybe that's not a good decision. We must be reminded of these things but here's here's the key the bible says that all these things will help us not to be swayed by false teachers and false gospels and we need to be rem reminded once again that this is for those who have been established in the truth which means we do not have the excuse not to be reminded of these things and not to be reminding each other of these things because God said to us that the greatest commandment was to love God, and he says you must love others. And by reminding each other, we're loving each other and fulfilling that in which God has left us. Now, verse 13, Peter talks about his desire. And he, like once again, he wastes no time here. He says, indeed, as long as I am in this tabernacle, I consider it right to stir you up by the way 
of a reminder. Peter's desire here is to steer them up, which literally means to awaken them spiritually, not to be idle, to be awakened spiritually. When our, when our souls are not awakened spiritually, we become sluggish spiritually. We become individuals who fail to have a clear mind in relationship to the gospel. And that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 12 that we must be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And for that to take place, we must be reminded. So Peter's desire here is actually as a desire of a shepherd. And a shepherd here in this sense, not in the shepherd of a pastor, me and Pastor David, which applies indirectly here, but the, the desire of a shepherd here is to stimulate his flock to consistently be taught by God's word, to be encouraged in their spiritual growth, to be admonished in the body, to strive for godliness, and by helping us to understand that regardless of how much we know, we must be constantly reminded of these things. The Christian life, listen to this, the Christian life is not only based on learning new things, but also being reminded of old, familiar things related to our faith. I don't know how many of you know uh, or have heard the name uh, John Wooden. John Wooden was legendary basketball coach. He coached UCLA for many, many seasons, and he actually won 10 national titles in 12 seasons. Now, all his players have spoken about this that I'm going to give it to you openly. John Wooden's, Wooden's first practice would be something like this. You come to the locker room, you get dressed, you go to the, to the basketball court, and then he would say, now guys, we're going to go back to the locker room. So they walk to the locker room, and then he would look at them, and he would say, listen, I need you to take your shoes off. Then they would take their shoes off. And then he would say, I need you to take your socks off. They would take their socks off. And then they, he would take his shoes off. And he would take his socks off. And he would say, here's the first practice. I'm going to remind you of how to wear your socks correctly. So he would put his socks on, put his second pair of socks on. He put his shoes on. And he says, you know why I'm teaching you these things? Because if you don't wear your socks correctly, you'll get blisters. If you get blisters, you won't be able to play offense. If you don't play offense, you can't score the basket. And if you don't score the basket, we do not win championships. That was my daughter, I think. That's the first amen I got this morning. But listen, John Wooden was saying, listen, you guys, most of you are going to go pro. You're going to play in the NBA. You're going to make tons of money. But here's, he takes them from this 30,000 foot level where they were, I'm going to go pro, I'm going to make all this money. And then he reminds them of the basic conditions that will help them to achieve that in which is the higher goal. And if that is true for a basketball player, how much more is for God through Peter to remind us that we must understand the basic principles before we can actually walk, just like my daughter right now. She's being held the whole time, and then she's going to crawl. And then she's going to make a mess in my house. And then we're going to have to put duct tape and everything else so she doesn't get boo-boos. But one day she's going to walk. And when she walks, she's going to have to be reminded of those basic things that help her to walk correctly. And that is the God we serve. 
Look at verse 14. Peter talks about this with a sense of urgency. He says, since I know that my tabernacle will soon be removed because our Lord Jesus Christ revealed this to me. Now, the word tabernacle here literally means body or tent. It is the same word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, when he talks about this immortal body against the or this mortal body against the immortal body that we're going to receive. He used this word as a tent. And according to Peter here, this tabernacle or his body will be soon removed. Now, most likely, Peter is talking, is referring back to John chapter 21, verses 18 to 19, where it says this. When you're old, and this is Jesus telling him, when you're old, you, you will stretch your hands and other will tie you up and bring you where you do not want to go. Now, Jesus said this to indicate what kind of death Peter was going to glorify God. This has been here 30 years at least that Peter has now heard the voice of Jesus explaining to him that he's going to suffer. And he's probably reminding himself that as he's aging, that promise is becoming truer by the day. Now, here's a challenge for us. And I wrote this here. Church, let's embrace the uncertainty of how many days we have left on this earth and allow that to be a motivating factor for us to live a godly legacy behind. Peter can say this because he has a goal in mind. Verse 15. Indeed, I will also make every effort after my departure that you have a testimony of these things. Now, Peter wants his godly legacy to outlive his physical life. And now, 2,000 years past, we are experiencing the legacy that God allowed Peter to have through the word that Peter wrote under the power of the Holy Spirit. His preaching would last, that his writings would be a blessing to the church, that the believers would be able to see God's grace and mercy. And we must in one way, if we're supposed to imitate Christ and imitate what we have in God's word, then we must in one way have a sense of urgency that outlasts us because this life is too short and too brief. All of that so the testimony of Christ can outlive us. Now do the math with me for a second. It's been almost 2,000 years that Peter passed away. Peter's testimony has stayed in God's word. We don't have that privilege. But I believe that a life that's lived for God can outlive us because God will take that testimony of his work in us to accomplish his mission. Verse 16 through 18. Peter moves on now from the significance or the importance of remembering God's scripture to the majesty, which is the, the scriptures now rooted in historical fact. Now, when it comes to the Bible... We don't have to think too hard about this because we know there are many people who will argue that the Bible is not accurate. 
that the Bible is not reliable. But I find it interesting that here's how Peter is going to respond to those who are saying in his time that God's word is not reliable. Listen to what he says, and he's going to give us a few things here. The first one, I believe, is the power of sight, okay, which is being eyewitness of Christ's greatness in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly concocted fables when we made known to you the power in the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. No, we were eyewitness of this greatness. First of all, what he witnessed here was based on historical facts. That's what he's saying. What I saw was grounded in historical facts, not in concocted fables. Now, fables here is the Greek word that we have today for mythology or mythos, myth, myth. And he's saying, this is not based on a false reality. What I saw was not something that I created. And false teachers in that time and even today, they're, they're casting doubt on Christ's work. They're casting doubt on the proclamation of God's word. And Peter is now probably being accused of creating a story that's man-made in relationship to Christ's resurrection and even Christ's return. So Peter, once again, he reminds them that the gospel includes, listen to this, verse 16, the power and the return of our Lord Jesus. The word here, return, is always used in the New Testament as a reference to Christ's return. So what he's saying is, what I saw and what I passed to you is 100% guaranteed because it's a proclamation of God to us. If false teachers can place a seed of doubt in you as they could perhaps place a seed of doubt in Peter's readers, then maybe at the end of the day, we would hear the voice saying, did God really say this? Does that sound familiar? God didn't say that, did he? Peter is saying that just as important as the resurrection, it is the return of Jesus. I can not only proclaim one, I have to proclaim both because it's historical. It's, it's, it's based on accuracy that's coming from God, not from me. It's not created by this guy. To make his point, Peter says that the apostles here, not only him, he's not saying I exclusively, exclusively have seen this. He says we have seen this. Now he's bringing a multitude of witnesses saying, we have done this together. We have witnessed this amazing event of God's greatness. And that is, once again, an allusion to Mark chapter 9. When Christ says, I tell you the truth, there are some standing here who will not experience death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. He is coming back. Now, the apostolic teaching here was, was anchored in this accuracy of the historical fa facts. Peter could have said, hey, you know what? Christ's return does not matter. But if he said that, he would say, hey, you know what? Maybe the resurrection didn't matter. Maybe Christ's death didn't matter. 
But just as the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus matter, he has to say he will come back because it's all there. The other day I was driving, or it's about two months ago, we were going over to get a Christmas tree, and we drove through this place, and uh, it was one of those outside theaters that you can go in and park your car in there, and what they did was really clever. They got a classic car from the 60s, and then they literally cut the car in half and put half of the car on one side and half on the other, and I almost had a heart attack when I saw that because I was like, I could have given the car to me. But listen, you can't just present one side of the story. You have to present all of it. And that's what Peter's saying. I can't give you half of it. It's based on historical accuracy, and it's based on what he has given us. So the return of Jesus here cannot be reduced to a spiritual truth split apart from history. It cannot be removed from God's redemptive plans. And here, in 2 Peter chapter 1, it cannot be erased from Peter's first-hand experience of the greatness, majesty of Christ. And that was the power of sight. Now listen to the power of sound here, which is hearing the Father's delight in the Son. Verse 17 through 18. For he received honor and glory from God the Father that the that the voice was conveyed to him by the majestic glory. This is my son, in whom I'm delighted or well pleased. When his voice was conveyed from heaven, we ourselves heard it. Once again, we ourselves heard it. For we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, what is Peter talking about here? He's talking about the transfiguration account in both from Luke chapter 9 and Matthew chapter 17 and there are a few things here that we understand from this account and the first one is that the transfiguration confirms Christ's deity God is sharing glory and honor here with his beloved son he's saying this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased he's letting everybody know that this son deserves all the honor and glory. And that's why the author of Hebrews will say that Christ is the radiance of the glory of the Father. This is ultimately a fulfillment from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. In Isaiah chapter 40, 42, verse 1, that's related to the promise given, given to David, David. But the second thing here is that Peter describes Jesus receiving honor and glory, not only confirming his deity, but receiving honor and glory. This is, once again, a designation of status. Now imagine this for a second. A God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, who spoke the world into existence. He's sharing honor and glory with his son. The only time, the only person that has ever done that. Third, Peter describes here the voice from God as one coming from a majestic glory. And this is our Heavenly Father. He is a glorious Father. Fourth, it depicts the coming of the kingdom. Peter experienced here a taste of what is to come 
And the event itself serves as a guarantee that he is coming back. Now, do you understand the argument that he's doing? You say Christ doesn't, does not coming back, that I made this thing up, but here's what's happening. Not only he's going to return, but he's promised to return, and everything about his return is based on his own word. And lastly, the transfiguration here erases any doubts about Christ. Listen to what Green says. It says, "Is the one whom God declared to be the king will be enthroned. His coming is sure. Whatever the feeble objections for the heretics might be, they raise their doubts, but God the Father, the majestic glory, has spoken. Now, when you leave here today, and you feel like you don't know if you can trust this, then you need to remember one thing. It will be the voices of the world outside against the voice who spoke the world into existence. And just that argument should put you at peace. See, not only we see the memory the importance of understanding and being reminded of God's scripture, but the majesty of that where scripture is rooted in historical facts, but always see the message. And the message is also the source of scripture here is God himself. Verse 19 to 21. Listen to what verse 19 says. Moreover, we possess the prophetic word as an altogether reliable thing, You do well if you pay attention to this as you would to a light shining in a murky place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter's last argument here is all about God's revelation, which according to him is more sure than any personal experience that you and I can have and somebody who does not believe this message can have. That is why Peter is going to actually argue that God's word is what dictates what we have in front of us and what, how we should live. Gruden says that the Bible contains all the words of God that we need for trusting and obeying him perfectly. Now, here's the first thing that we see about the word of God. It's reliable. You can trust, you can put your confidence in it much more than the comedian can put his confidence on his accountant. Much more than I can put my confidence in getting the house of my dreams or to drive an electric car one day that will drive 3,000 miles without having to be recharged so I don't have to get 12 miles a gallon on my car. My confidence should not be on those things, church. My confidence should be on the one that the entire scripture is rooted on. And in the one that sourced this Bible, this book to come into being. By implication here, if the word is reliable, by implication, if God's word is altogether reliable, like Peter says, then any man-made feebles or stories are not MacArthur says this, throughout redemptive history, God himself has repeatedly emphasized that his inspired word is inerrant, infallible, and the all-sufficient source of truth, which does not require human confirmation. 
So what Peter is saying is that you may question my testimony if you don't believe my words, but you cannot disbelieve or reject his word. That is why when you share your, 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 the gospel with somebody, you don't have to be confident in yourself. And I would say that if you are confident in yourself, then you probably need to say, can I have your phone number? I'll call you another day. Because you do not deserve to be there. You don't stand on your word alone. You stand on his word. You are not a carrier, an ambassador of your own message. We are ambassadors of his message. If we remember those things, that removes the weight of our shoulders to be a testimony to a dying world. So this guy, this God in his word is based on his character and it is reliable. But here's what it is as well. It is also missional. Now from the beginning of time, God has been on a rescue mission. You read the first two chapters in Genesis and everything is great. And then the third chapter comes in and then the fourth, fourth chapter comes in and you realize this thing is a mess. And God has been on a rescue mission from the beginning of time to rescue individuals who do not deserve to be in his presence like you and I. And so Wearsby says this, and I think it's a great statement. This is a picture of, of a dismal swamp. Human history started in a perfect garden, but the garden today is a murky swamp. What you see when you look at this world system is an indication of the spiritual condition of your heart we still see beauty in God's creation, but we see no beauty in what mankind is doing with God's creation. And so I think the psalmist was right when he says, his word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So let's pay attention to it. C.T. Studd was, a, was an English missionary who served in China, India, and he died when he was a missionary in Africa. He has um, many great quotes, and I don't know his entire story, life story here, but he has a quote that has is, is really impacted me, and I think it fits extremely well with this fact that God is a missional God. Here's what he said. Some want to live within the sound of the church or, or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard away from hell. It, if I understand church, if I understand for one moment what God did for me to rescue me, then my desire will not be anything less than to be a barrier from stopping people as much as I can, those who are and will receive the gospel from falling into eternity and being away from God. Obviously, it's not about my power. I'm not saying I have this ability. But sometimes we remove ourselves and we're just like, we're just like the fans in, in a football stadium. There's 100,000 people there that desperately need exercise, and there's 22 guys out there who desperately need some rest, and we're like, go for it. That's not what he says. Use me, God. You're a missional God. You rescue me. Now make me useful for you. 
And I think if we understand this, we will understand the urgency that Peter was having here now that he's looking at his life and he's realizing, you know what? My hands shake a little bit more than they were before. I have wrinkles and I, I'm in, probably in prison right now and I may not last very long with the diet that I have, but I want to give everything. And so when the Lord returns, you need to remember that we'll no longer need his word. But in the meantime, would you use his word to represent the missional God that God is in trying to rescue people with the gospel? Peter now ends this chapter, the last two verses here, with a clarification about God's, the, the authorship of scripture. And did you notice that he's moving away from his own eyewitness experience and placing everything on the shoulders of the one who spoke everything into existence and the one who he, is, he can be confident because his word is reliable. And here's what he says. Above all, verse 20, you do well if you recognize this. And what is this? No prophecy of scripture ever comes about being by the prophet's own imagination. For no prophecy was ever born of human impulse, rather man carried along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so the first thing that we see is that the source, God himself is the source of his word. And he's saying no prophecy comes from my imagination, but from the one who can speak. The idea of prophecy here is actually that in which comes into being. And God is the only one able to put something into being. I share with you this story about a long time ago, I heard from a pastor in Brazil, he's, he, he's, he's sharing this story about a discussion between God and a scientist, and the scientist told, the, told God, he said, you know what, I can create man. And God says, you want to go ahead and do it. And he's like, okay, I'm going to do it. And so scientist walks out, and God says, but just remember, before you do that, make your own clay. Now, God, God is the source and Peter's removing everything from himself, saying, God, you have done it. False prophets, they spoke on their own accord, and that's what Peter's saying. They're, they're going to tell you things here, but you know what? This is not a God-giving message. They're creating their own principles, which allow them to intimidate you and cast doubt on you. And that's why God's word says no prophecy was ever created apart from God, or as he says here, out of human impulse. But here's the second thing, which is the last thing that we have here. God is the one that spoke this into existence, but this message was delivered by man and it was carried out by the Holy Spirit, which means that there is an agent involved in this process. The prophets did not give their own interpretation here, but God used their personalities, their character, their, their literary styles to make his word available to us through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. This was carried along, which conveys the idea of a, a ship that's in the water, that's being carried along by the wind. This is what God did. God didn't force them to write, but God was moving along to make them write his word, which we know very importantly from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that God was the one that breathed his own words out. But here's the point. The prophets spoke from God and were carried along by the Holy Spirit to declare the message. But Wearsby says, man die, but the word, li the wor the word lives. 
Experiences fade, but the word remains. The world grows darker, but the prophetic light shines brighter. The believer who builds his or her life on the word of God and who looks for, for the coming of the Savior is not likely to be led, listen to this, to be led astray by false teachers and false gospels. He will be taught by the Spirit and it will be grounded on the sure word of God. So just as Peter stated to us today in this passage, let us be reminded of the significance of remembering God's word, of being established in him, of being rooted in God himself, because the power of God's word is so significant that he is guiding us in his own light because it is grounded in historical facts and in the God who is the source of everything. So church, when you leave here today, you must remember these things. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We pray, Heavenly Father, that the words of the Apostle Peter will become truer in our lives as we live to glorify you. Father, we, we hope and pray that you would remind us constantly of your word, that we would be grounded in you, that we would be established in you. And Father, we, we just want to thank you for your love and care for us. In Jesus' name we pray.